From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. I'm Ashley Coaches, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. This week comes to you from the archives. But first, here's some headlines. A study led by University of Alberta PhD candidate Rujia Wang was provided evidence that hydraulic fracturing, known as fracking, is likely causing stronger and more frequent earthquakes in the province. Fracking involves causing small earthquakes that make natural gas extraction possible. During research conducted from 2010 to 2013, researchers recorded fewer than 10 seismic events. From 2013 to 2016, the same area experienced 250 events that registered greater than 2.5 on the Richter scale. Events around 3 on the Richter scale can usually be felt by a few people, particularly if they're on upper floors of buildings. For comparison, most people will feel an earthquake at a 4.0 magnitude. Alberta's largest earthquake happened just last January and registered at 4.8 on the Richter scale and was triggered by a fracking operation in Fox Creek. Wang hopes that her study will support a push to careful regulations and monitoring around fracking operations. After a three-month campaign led by a student group called U Laval Sans Fossils, the University of Laval in Quebec has become Canada's first university to divest from fossil fuel industries. Other university groups in the province are now also campaigning for their administrations to divest, and we hope to see the movement spread across Canada. Way to go, Laval! On the same day that the University of Laval divested from fossil fuels, some Texans felt the effects of a natural gas pipeline explosion that occurred close to the town of Refugio. No deaths or serious injuries were reported, and the fire is under control. Kinder Morgan, who owns this pipeline, has stated that the impacts are being assessed, and the cause of the leak is under investigation. When we think of a constitution, we think of basic human rights. We as humans have the right to vote, the right to practice religion, the right to own property. But what about nature? Ecuador was the first country in the world to establish the rights of nature at a national level, which was included in its 2008 constitution. Terra Informer's Nicole Wired talks to Dr. Kelly Swing at Tiputini Biodiversity Station in Ecuador about how this constitutional change is great in theory, but in practice, there are a lot of hurdles to still overcome. Sumat Koswai. It's an ancient Quechua term meaning good living or the good life. It's a term that has permeated through all aspects of indigenous life in South America and in 2008 was incorporated at a national level into Ecuadorian constitution as a way to give nature rights. It was introduced as an alternative to development, not to say that Ecuador was aiming to be underdeveloped, but developed differently. While development puts life at the service of growth and accumulation, Smack Kweswai places life first with institutions at the service of life. It's about living in harmony and not in competition. Smack Koswai, good living, seems like a great idea in theory, but how do you implement something similar in countries like Canada or the States? And once it has been implemented, how do you put such a concept into practice? So I asked Dr. Kelly Swing, an American ecologist who has lived in Ecuador since the early 90s. He is the co-founder of Tipitini Biodiversity Station in the Amazon, a professor at the Universidad San Francisco de Quito, and an expert on all things environment. Here in Ecuador, nature has rights, and you don't see that in any other country around the world. How do you approach a topic like that, um, you know, a topic like nature as a, as a human, not a human being, but... But as a being. As a being. Uh, you know, that's represented in the legal system. Yeah. How do you approach something like that, maybe in, in the States or in Canada? 
Well, I would tend to say that what a novel idea, what a wonderful idea to to provide uh, basically the the planet and our surroundings with the same rights that we have. It's really hard to to do that in some respect because you know those inanimate things don't have a voice for themselves. And so what that means is it automatically sets up a situation in which, okay, nature has rights, but now somebody has to speak for her. Um, and of course, I, I would tend to say, that just stick your head out the window, nature will speak for herself, and she does it quite uh, eloquently, uh, from my perspective. Some people look out the window and they say, yeah, it's a bunch of trees, or <laughs> something like that, right? So it's, it's all a matter of perspective, but I think this idea of giving nature rights on a legal scale is a really interesting idea. And I have a feeling that over time it's going to become uh, more and more contagious, that other countries will adopt uh, the same kind of, of perspective about nature. Um, and the, and the, reason, the reason I say that is, is because it just makes a lot of sense. If we, if we want to live, and this is also part of the Ecuadorian constitution, right? It, we, we uh, assign rights uh, to nature, but we also have these rights that are that are associated with people. <clears throat> we always talk about inalienable rights for uh, for for the the people in the U.S. Certainly, but one of the rights for Ecuadorians is to live in a balanced environment. And of course, if you if you're going to guarantee that kind of situation, those kinds of conditions for the people then obviously the other side of that is that, well, nature has to, has to be intact, at least at, uh, at some level. It has to be sufficiently intact to function and provide air and water and, and absorb carbon dioxide and all those kinds of, of ecosystem uh, services. So I, I, think it's a, I think it's a completely logical kind of extension of the, this idea of, of providing people with the right to have uh, you know, a healthy environment. I think those clauses uh, in the Constitution are are really innovative, and I think what that means is there's a tremendous potential here for the development of a very different mentality. But in practice, so far, there have been very few lawsuits or you know cases that have been uh, brought before uh, the justice system to to actually test these laws. One of the first tests of the you know, nature's rights laws was a lawsuit against the municipality of the, of the city of Loja, kind of in southern Ecuador, because they were building a road and all the materials uh, from that road, like from the deforestation and the road grading and everything, were just being poured into a river. And it caused some real problems with the flow and it changed, changed the nature of this river. And that was brought uh, before the legal system uh, you know, at a very local level and it was basically dismissed. It was there was an appeal, and upon appeal, nature's rights were were recognized, and you know the decision uh, was that the city of Loja or the municipality of Loja had to uh, pay for the remediation of these environmental impacts. And so a lot of us said, you know, the language in the Constitution is that's going to cause an avalanche of 
outcry from people all over Ecuador saying, well, in my neighborhood they did this, and over here there's around this oil operation they did this, and in this place they cut down this entire forest and they, they, they've uh, established a, a, a gigantic oil palm plantation. And so they've eliminated all this biodiversity and that's impacted me and that's impacted the future for ecotourism or whatever. That didn't happen. There has been no outcry. There has been no inundation of lawsuits. There's been, I think now, like a half a dozen. But the one that I talked about before, that yeah. got, that actually got the, a ruling that nature's rights had been violated, now we're like a year and a half down the road after that sentence was handed down, and not one dime has been spent on remediation of that river. Nothing. And so, you know, it's kind of like, you know, it's pretty rhetoric, uh, in the Constitution, but in practice, it's not meant anything. Why? Why? Because there's not, there's not the political weight behind that, and the laws have no teeth. Right? It's just like, well, yeah, it's there. It looks nice, but it's not. You know, in practice, it's not real. It's not. It's not made tangible. Thanks, Nicole. If you're just tuning in, this is Terra Informa. Wayano Leduc is a Nishiobi environmental activist, economist, and writer. She spent her entire career as an unflagging advocate for food and energy sustainability. She ran as the U.S. vice presidential nominee for the United States Green Party in 1996 and 2000, and she remains a leader around North America on issues of locally-based sustainable development. Terra Informa correspondent Matt Hergy spoke with Wayano Leduc from her home on the White Earth Reservation in Minnesota. My name is Winona LaDuke. I'm Ojibwe from the White Earth Reservation in northern Minnesota. I'm an economist. I, I work primarily in indigenous economies, rural economies, and questions about what a green economy or an indigenous economy looks like in this millennium and into the next one. I am uh, involved in community development on my own reservation, which is the White Earth Reservation in northern Minnesota. I direct a rather large community development organization that works on restoration of agriculture, um, and I work on renewable energy. So you've dedicated much of your career to working on issues of sustainable development, renewable energy, and food systems. Can you describe these efforts in a little bit more detail? Well, what I could tell you is something that you likely know, which is that Indian country in the U.S. and also in Canada has a history of obviously being self-reliant, sustainable, healthy, and worked really hard to maintain that even in a colonial era. There's a history of colonization in Canada and the United States which basically deconstructed indigenous economies and made us into dependent people. So what we have is indigenous communities that know how to have local self-reliant economies that could be well adapted into this millennium. The process of colonization has separated us from that process and certainly created a really highly inefficient industrial system in both Canada and the U.S. at such a level that now, you know, the North is consuming this maybe a quarter or a third of the world's resources, has a really inefficient energy economy that transports food from whether it is New Zealand or Chile to, you know, Toronto, Edmonton, New York, Boston, Minneapolis has a set of um, in energy as an in energy infrastructure which wastes about 
57% of the energy from point of production to point of consumption. And we now are looking at the implications of that, whether it is climate destabilization, whether it is peak oil and how badly you want to scrape the bottom of the barrel, like in the tar sands in Alberta, or scraping the bottom of the barrel by, you know, fracking and coal bed methane throughout the western United States. We are in this throngs of an industrial society which is trying to buttress up the single most inefficient energy economy in the history of the world. How has that manifested itself in society, and what problems has it created? Well, most energy production in this country comes from centralized power plants, which get their resources from often indigenous communities, whether in the Canadian North or in the western United States, where one-third of all western low-sulfur coal is on Indian reservations and two-thirds of uranium. You know, roughly similar statistics of different resources in, in the North, the single largest dam projects in the United States are on in, in Indian communities or flooded Native communities, and it's exactly the same in Canada. So what you have is a point of production, which is usually located in an isolated or relatively isolated Indigenous community, and then a point of consumption, which is a thousand miles away, namely some urban area, a city. And in, in that situation, between the point of origin and the point of final consumption, you find that, that the power that was produced is produced inefficiently, there's an incentive only to produce more and to sell more, not to be efficient, because corporations make a profit off of how much they sell, not how much they save. And then you have the clear situation where the power lines or the pipelines, in the case of, for instance, the Keystone Pipeline, between point of origin and point of consumption, consume a vast amount of energy. And in that whole process, you know, what happens is, is that your economy becomes structured in a way that enhances and is entirely inefficient. You've advocated for the relocalization of economies. Uh, is that a solution to the problems that you foresee that we're facing right now? Yeah, the relocalization of, of economies is, is absolutely the only solution that one can have. A relocalization combined with efficiency. The fact is, is that you cannot keep importing food from New Zealand and Chile. You need to learn to grow food more locally and not squander your agricultural lands or lands which could produce food for whether it is inefficient sprawl and housing development or for mining operations. We need to ensure that less fossil fuels are used in transporting food around the globe. And in the same vein, we need to increase the efficiency of all of our, our energy production and the consumption has to be increasingly more efficient. How do you foresee that moving forward? How do we go about instituting these changes on a societal level? My, uh, my opinion and my practice is that you, do, you work on many fronts. I work in my own community and I work with other communities because you have to have the intellectual, technical, and financial capital to rebuild a power production system. And you have to have people that can take care of that power production system in your community. And then after that, you have to work on policies which do not buttress and subsidize fossil fuel and nuclear development at the level that they have been subsidized for the past 50 years. It is entirely a drain on the resources of any nation state. Then you have to move towards creating the market and the infrastructure 
of power lines, for instance, so that renewable energy can be created and distributed in a way that is just and fair. My assessment is, is that a province like Alberta, which has an immense amount of wealth, capital, and intellectual capital, could easily move to a renewable energy economy if it would decide that it would like to move into the next economy instead of combusting itself into oblivion along with the rest of the country and the rest of the world through such production as the tar sands. And in addition to that, wasting and squandering the vast amount of resources that are put into such an inefficient energy production system as the tar sands, which over the long haul will set this country, Canada, and the United States further and further behind. If this pattern of overconsumption and squandering continues, what do you foresee happening in the future? What negative effects might happen in the next 10, 20 years? Frankly, the writing is on the wall. I mean, you cannot keep dousing everything with with gasoline and dousing everything with money because neither of those is is a sustainable strategy. The reality is is that the disparity of wealth and and the disparity of climate change-related disasters and ultimately the fact that by 2020 it's estimated that 20% of world GDP will be spent on climate change-related disasters, such as the forest fires in the north in Canada. There is no plan in anybody's stock portfolio to address that. The reality is, is that the only solution to the poor direction that Canada is leading itself in and trying to hold up its head as some kind of a savior for the United States with cheap tar sands oil is to actually reconfigure the direction to something that is durable and sustainable. And the reality is is that the people who historically knew how to do that are Indigenous people. And what I do know from a lot of work and a lot of education is that Indigenous knowledge systems and the adaptation of those knowledge systems to this present millennium is something that is not taught in schools and not valued as a part of a paradigm. That's something that you've really championed is the uh, Aboriginal communities almost have an inherent advantage in understanding and creating sustainability. I guess I just have one more question about the White Earth Land Recovery Project. Uh, what has that done in your mind to raise awareness and set the precedent for sustainable development in the broader society? Well, we're a 20-year-old organization, and in the course of the 20 years, we've purchased 1,400 acres of land on which we grow organic foods. We have a wild rice processing mill for rice, which we harvest with two sticks in a canoe, as opposed to what they do up in Saskatoon or up in northern Saskatchewan. We have wind turbines, a solar thermal, pan- uh, solar thermal and solar photovoltaic facilities. We've trained hundreds of people, worked with farm-to-school programs in tr- three tribal schools on our reservation to provide traditional foods for our communities and studied and documented the impact of relocalizing food and energy economies. If you want to have a long-term ability to sustain your community and have some durability and some ability to be healthy into the future, the fact is is that you absolutely have to relocalize an economy so you don't lose the wealth that exists within it. Thanks, Matt. Julian Ageman is the chair of the Department of Urban and Environmental Policy and Planning at the Tufts University in Boston, Medford, Massachusetts. His research focuses on the intersections between social justice and sustainability, an idea which he terms 
just sustainability. He describes just sustainability as the need to ensure a better quality of life for all, now and into the future, in a just and equitable manner, whilst living within the limits of supporting ecosystems. Catherine Lennon spoke with him about the need for the sustainability movement to broaden its work beyond ecological and conservation issues to include issues of inequality and social justice. When we think about sustainability, why should we just think of environmental issues? They are obviously very important to sustainability, but uh, ultimately issues of inequality are also going to be very important. And there's a huge, uh, as we know, and growing inequality agenda uh, that relates to sustainability as well, because uh, recent research um, in a book called The Spirit Level, Wilkinson and Pickett, show that basically more unequal societies uh, tend to have higher carbon footprints because uh, of what's called uh, competitive consumption. And what that means is basically that uh, the poor try desperately to keep up with the, those who they perceive as being richer than themselves. And uh, it drives this competitive consumption, keeping up with the Joneses. And societies like, for instance, the UK, Australia, United States, are very unequal in that sense. And, um, you know, so inequality, basically, the argument goes, is driving um, carbon footprints, driving consumption. And so if we are uh, interested in, um, you know, lowering the carbon loading of the atmosphere, then we should also be interested in decreasing inequality between people and between nations. Um, and so to me, um, the move towards what I call a just sustainability uh, would be um, a, a sort of twin-pronged approach looking at uh, decreasing inequality, but also increasing environmental quality. So that's, that's in a sense, uh, in a nutshell, the kind of thinking and the kind of research that I do. Part of this work is being critical of the sustainability movement. And um, on the equity piece, I've heard you share the criticism that the movement keeps equity off the agenda. What do you mean by that? Well, um, quite simple, really. If you look at, um, as I have over the last 20 years, really since the, uh, the initial Rio uh, Earth Summit in, in uh, 1992, uh, I've worked with local authorities um, in the UK I've, uh, as an academic, studied um, how local governments have been imagining or envisioning or practicing sustainability, and I've seen that by far the, the weakest uh, aspect of sustainability practice has been issues related to equity. We've been very good on cycle lanes, on recycling, uh, reasonably good on waste reduction, creating more permeable surfaces in urban areas. We've been good on the technical and scientific and environmental aspects, but we haven't been so good on the, um, the, the equity and justice aspect. I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying that you know, if we want a just sustainability, and I believe that that's the only form of sustainability that will really make a transformation change, then we have to really look at these, these issues. We know that in terms of climate change, the first and uh, worst affected people are those who have least responsibility for producing carbon. That's a clear uh, issue. It's a moral issue, but it's also an issue of justice and equity. And so a lot of people, a lot of First Nations Canadians, uh, Sheila Watt-Cloutier, for instance, have called on uh, governments to really look at climate justice as being uh, a key issue. 
And yet, if you look at most of the climate change agenda, it's still about the science and the economics and the technical aspects. You know, I would argue those are very important, but we need to bring in the, the moral and ethical and justice and equity arguments. Um, the, the social movement of sustainability, I mean, you only have to, to go to meetings about sustainability issues, um, and you'll see, um, you know, a very much... Monocultural crowd of people in general. Um, you know, how do we broaden that? Well, one way that we do it is is to move the, move move away from uh, always going for answers uh, and look at what the questions are that we're asking. And if we start asking questions like, what is the relationship of inequality to environmental sustainability? Then I think, you know, you're broadening the agenda. But if if at the moment, as the agenda stands. It's a very uh, middle-class agenda. It isn't asking questions about uh, inequality. Uh, and in, in, in not doing that, you're not going to bring in those people who, uh, who, who maybe want a more just and equitable formulation of sustainability. And that's quite a long-winded way of saying that the, basically, to me, the, the sustainability movement is, is still dominated by green issues, whereas I would like to see it take on some of the, the more inner urban issues or issues related um, certainly in Canada to First Nations. I mean, this is what I call just sustainability. Really, a, de a definition of a just sustainability is, you know, how do we improve people's quality of life? Uh, how do we do that now and into the future? And how do we do that while living within the limits of ecosystems? So, you know, the idea of a just sustainability then would be um, environmental quality, uh, living within limits, it would be improving people's quality of life, uh, it would mean a, a more equitable and just distribution of the good and the bad things of our society, and it would also have a, an intergenerational component, that it would be about looking at social justice now and in the future. So that's what I hope for uh, in, a, in a just sustainability movement. I, I, at the moment, the, uh, the sustainability movement is still dominated by green issues. The social justice and environmental justice movements are still dominated largely by questions of justice and equity. I want to see a, uh, a more complete marriage between those two concerns because I think that um, looking at those concerns together is a much more powerful way of uh, moving towards justice. Well, maybe just to finish, um, just one one last question for you. I'm just I'm wondering how you see the the sustainability movement and the social justice or environmental justice movement. How do you see those coming together? Well, you know, the sort of social justice, environmental justice movement, and the sustainability movement um, they do work together um, through coalition. Example that I could give you would be uh, in, here in Boston, uh, 10 or 15 years ago, we had the Clean Buses for Boston movement, which was a coalition of social justice and uh, green groups who were looking at getting compressed natural gas buses in Boston because we had a lot of what were called dirty diesels. And, uh, and, and so this coalition developed because people decided you know, we can all sign up to this. And this made me think that, you know, maybe 
And, you know, in doing that, in co-working on, on campaigns and agenda and issues, perhaps these two movements, which do have ideological differences, can start to, uh, you know, think about, uh, you know, the, the, the way that they could work more closely together. And, and I think that's, that's a possible. There's, there's a whole range of, of, of areas, especially areas like food justice, uh, climate justice, where really the, the, the issues are absolutely clear that, that you know, that, that these are issues where justice and equity are up. So again, climate change, climate justice is another area, I think, where we, can, we might see a coming together of the kind of justice advocates and the green advocates uh, over a really progressive change. Well, that's it for this week's show. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. If you have any questions or comments, you can send us an email at terra at cjsr.com or tweet us at Terra Informa. You can also check us out on Facebook at Terra Informa or visit our website at terrainforma.ca. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. This week's contributors were Amanda Rooney, Charlie Blay, Lauren Carter. I've been your host, Ashley Coaches. Catch you next time.